is the Equipping Podcast. We are back this week with Jonathan Morrow and Brooke Hempel to talk about Generation Z. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Jonathan Morrow from Impact 360 and Brooke Hempel with the Barna Group. If you listened last week, then you heard us say that Impact 360 partnered with Barna and then just earlier this year published a study on Generation Z. And uh, Gen Z, if you're not familiar with who they are, just think XYZ. So you have Gen X, which are people who are in their late 30s, 40s, early 50s-ish. And then Gen Y, which are a lot of times are known as millennials, are mid-30s down to about 20-ish. And then this next generation is Gen Z, so XYZ. And so we've been talking with Jonathan, who works with Gen Z students all the time, and then Brooke partnering with them to to uh, study Generation Z. In part one, if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But really just trying to dig in to figure out what defines this generation, who are they? But uh, specifically on this part, though, this week, we're going to talk about the unique challenges that people face if you're a parent or if you're a youth leader or something like that, and you're working with Gen Z, how do we think about reaching them, shepherding them? And I think to start off, I'd love to just ask both of you, how does Gen Z look at life and how do they define like, if I hit this, then that's success for me. Like, where am I going? What trajectory am I heading in? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And so one of the things we did uh, when we worked with the Barna group on this was to ask teenagers uh, kind of what is the ultimate goal of life? And half of teens, about 51% of Gen Z, agree that happiness is my ultimate goal in life. And that's more than other generations, higher than millennials, higher than Gen X, higher than boomers. And so again, happiness comes to the forefront. A couple of things that are interesting around that is one of the ways that they're defining that or kind of parsing that out has to do with kind of success, um, financial independence and, and career and, and education. Some of those pieces are kind of falling in there with the traditional, you know, the satisfaction of my desires, you know, kind of happiness, pleasure journey that a lot of us are on in that sense. And so one of the ways they're looking at life is they want to be happy. And so, but there's still a lot of confusion about what, what that is and then what's ultimately going to deliver happiness for them. Yeah, I think that's a really important one to to recognize that um, they've grown up in a world with technology in their hand all the time. So they've grown up in a world where you can define yourself. Um, you know, maybe some are so sophisticated as to have an avatar, maybe not. They might just have multiple personalities on social media um, or identities. But what that means is they have this sense of, therefore, I should define my future. Therefore, I should define myself. Hmm. So they're very, very cognizant of their external identity. And so when we asked about what does happiness look like for them, it became all about achievement. So 43% of them said financial success, 20% of them said educational achievement, only 20% said family, only 8% said spiritual, and 6% said health. So happiness is about achievement and building my identity on these things that really define me as successful. Um, which is a really tenuous place to be, um, especially, yeah. you know, given. <laughs> totally given the, is. It's all about that you know, money. You got to make that money. <laughs> right. And given the, exactly. And given the way, you know, college can really shape kids in, in some tough ways, mm. they are very, very achievement oriented and, and driven. And their identity is really all about what they make of themselves more so than where they ca- came from. 
So we had asked people um, by generation, kind of what's important to your sense of self, which is our way of saying what's your identity based in. And older generations were more likely to say my background or upbringing, like the family I came from, is what defined me or my religious beliefs. And this generation was much more about all those things that they can define, their achievement, their education, their hobbies and pastimes. So that is um, a really uh, tough thing to shepherd as a parent. Um, In some ways, it's really interesting because the world is their oyster, right? Mm -hmm. Um, There's tons of opportunity. They don't feel this sense of, you know, you're born into who you are that previous generations did. But also, that then can make them overwhelmed by choice, Mm -hmm. overwhelmed by opportunity. And so they need a guide to navigate that, especially at these young, impressionable moments of their life when they're choosing pathways. And one of the interesting things as well about happiness was only one in five, about 20% of Gen Z wants to get married by the age of 30. And that was a really interesting insight. Um, And when we talked about the marks of an adult, 0% of Gen Z identified marriage with being adult. 2% (laughs) Mm -hmm. identified being a parent. So what does that tell us? It tells us that marriage in many ways in the family as an institution, it's just not really even on their f- immediate future radar. And that'll have its own mm. ripple effects in culture. And as the church, I know we've needed to get better about our conversation about singleness and marriage and everything like that. But that's an important statistic to understand that the, the way they're looking at their future doesn't necessarily include that kind of family and marriage piece as a strong, strong part mm. of their horizon. Man, that is that's so interesting because I I'm single in late twenties and I look back at my childhood and I easily would have said like oh like marriage mark of an adult so can you help us understand like where that came from why is it not on their radar why has that moved to the background Yeah, I think there's a couple different reasons and Brooke you've done a lot of work on this as well is this generation in many ways has seen the cultural degeneration of marriage. Mm-hmm to the point that began long before Obergefell, you know, no-fault divorce in the early 1970s. And the kind of the shrapnel of this, and then them wanting to get it right, they're like, hey, I saw the pain and frustration that my parents went through, or maybe I was even raised in. Why would I want to rush into that? I want to make sure I'm put together, I'm financially independent, I'm financially stable, I'm my own person. And there's a lot of really good things about some of those things. But I think there's also sometimes an over-caution um, as I've interacted with a lot of students in Next Generation, as they look at the institution of marriage, because I don't want to mess this up, but then they don't take any risk yeah. to kind of pursue some of those relationships either. So I think there's both going, and then the cultural narrative right now is, you know, you do you, and that doesn't involve obligation or duty or putting two people together. And so there's a lot of different factors, um, but those are a couple observations I'd make. I don't know what you see, Brooke, in the research and some of the yeah. trends, but... I'd say exactly the same. And I think I'd I'd take it even a step further, which is, again, in their lifetime, marriage has been redefined Mm. and gender has been been redefined. And so that makes, I I just wonder, and we don't know how it'll play out yet, right? Because they're just beginning to get into the stage of adulthood. But I just wonder if it's, it's not even about married or not. It's like, is that even relevant anymore? Yeah. now, granted, that won't be the case for those who grow up in a family where you know they've been breeding the sense of um, the value of family and, and getting married and being a part of the church body. So that that will be different for some kids. But the broader culture, right. um, it's just not a value that's going to have the same relevance as it has for previous generations. So um, it 
it isn't aspirational. It's kind of like a side thing you do just to bring that happiness that you're looking for. Mm. And it may not work out because, <laughs> because your standards are really high. Well, but let's, but let's talk about it not working out because I mean, at least I know this, we have dreams and aspirations and look for happiness in things and things rarely work out like we think they are going to. So what have, mm-hmm. what have you guys seen as the side effects and a point of opportunity for people looking to engage Gen Z with the disillusionment that comes from the realization that the things that I thought were going to make me happy are not actually making me happy. Well, one of the ways that that plays out, I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but I think it's so important to be aware of with this generation is anxiety and Mm -hmm. mental health. Um, We've seen it come up in a number of different ways, different issues Mm -hmm. that they're struggling with more so than any generation before. And so that's the effect of thinking that you're looking for happiness and finding yourself disillusioned and then not knowing what to do about it. Mm. Um, And I'm going to get really scientific for a minute, but say, you know, again, when you, when you grow up with the way that our technology is wired, it gives us these little happiness doses, um, these little hits to the dopamine in our brain, which makes us really happy. And so we're like, always searching for that physiologically (laughs) as a result. And so we become even more disillusioned when we're not constantly being fed that, you know, I got the thumbs up on the social media page or someone liked my comment. Um, That's really, really a hard place for people to um, work their way out of and to not be receiving that constant reinforcement. And so I think parents have a great opportunity to help their kids navigate that and just be aware that that's what's happening and almost like train your brain, right? Think of it like physical fitness training. So this is training my brain. How do I train my brain not to be pinning my happiness, pinning my, or my deep, more deep seated joy on these very temporal things that the world around me is kind of conditioning me to try to do. Yeah. And then you have those highs from the dopamine release, right? But then you have the lows and then that, tr- you know, the cue trigger and reward you're back in that loop in, in many ways of that addictive behavior, which I do think, and we can talk more about the technology piece. I think by any objective standard, smartphones and social media count as addictive behavior. Yep. Um, and so I think the only real question is what are we going to do about that? Because Mm -hmm. if you're addicted to something, you know, what do you, what's one of the first steps to do to halt that is to remove yourself from the environment, right? Because the cue, the trigger and the reward, you got to break that loop. Mm -hmm. The problem is if that smartphone is always in your pocket, the addictive behavior in the environment's always with you. Yeah. So unless you're taking time to set that aside and give yourself some rhythms, which is I think one of the prescriptions, I guess, for helping this next generation in our own digital discipleship and, and, and helping them, is there's gotta be time where we kind of push back and, and, and put those things down. Dude, we should totally advocate for going back to the '80s brick phone. <laughs> yeah, you no gotta carry phone. that thing around. You gotta, you gotta want it. Here's, right? I mean, here's your suitcase. Here's like, phone. All right, guys, I'm bringing my phone with me. <laughs> so embarrassing. Awesome. Um, can we, can oh, we roll this in, please? Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> um, um, yeah, yeah, sorry so, about but, that. but yeah, with that, you know, and to compliment what Brooke was sharing is, you know, we have in many ways bubble wrapped this generation, mm. and they don't face a lot of adversity while they're in our care, whether in our youth groups or as parents. And so when they do face adversity or disappointment or failure, they in many ways literally don't know what to do with that because everyone has always swooped in and saved it or managed it or whatever else. But I think one of the prescriptions there and one of the kind of the mindset shifts we need to help Gen Z do is less bubble wrap and more challenge. In many ways, I think as the church and as parents, we need to introduce challenge 
so that we can be there to help coach through it so they can develop some resilience along the way in lots of different areas. What do you do when things don't go your way? And in many ways, that's not something that's being being taught. I was just training a, a group and they're hiring staff and they're like, but they don't follow through. They don't, they don't work. They don't press through these things, but that's kind of the way they've just been acculturated to grow up. So that's mm. something that we can help them do. Yes, yes, yes. On the introducing challenge. <laughs> um, I'm fully, fully behind that. And I think, um, again, we just, we saw so much of it in our research, like even the most equipped teams still weren't prepared for adversity. And that that's just inevitable with life. And we don't want them to give up and move on to the next thing. We want them to work through that mm-hmm. and to wrestle with the hard things. So um, I think that's just really, really critical for parents to look for those opportunities to engage with challenge and <laughs> failure and things just not going our way. And pushing them back to identity and really kind of who they do. They have a gospel centered identity yeah. and in kind of hammering that in a way, but also narrating it for them as they go. Brooke, what did that look like in your research? You said they don't know how to handle it. How, what, what did they actually do? I mean, was it just like <laughs> deer in headlights or did they divert yeah. to something else or? Yeah. Or yeah. Blank stares um, or just that uncomfortable shifting in your chest. So in focus groups, it was, I don't know. In fact, I heard the words, I don't know. I'm so confused repeatedly mm-hmm. um, in our focus groups. You saw blank stares. You saw uncomfortable shifting. But even in our surveys, this is what blew me away. You know, we, we always offer an option of, I don't know, I'm not sure. It was the highest use of that button that I have wow. ever seen in a survey. Yeah, and wow. in all of our studies, you know, it was it was in the teams, you know, the, the double digits who would say, I'm, I don't know the answer to these basic questions. Mm-hmm. So they just, they kind of get stuck and they either, you know, move on to something different um, or they just freeze. And so neither of those is the right answer. You yeah, know, the right, right answer is let's wrestle through that. Let's talk about it. Um, but they're just not prepared to, to do that. And so, and that on us, that's on us as parents, right? Yeah. Like we have got to help them get in there and, and be prepared to, to like live real life, you know, face those challenges. And underneath that, and this is something that is harder to talk about, but I think we need to it takes because it takes more time. Is I really believe there's a crisis of knowledge that's underneath the surface um, for, for this generation, especially because knowledge. If you if you think about it, that's what authorizes you to act in the world. That's what gives you confidence, right? Knowledge is why you let some people put their hands in your mouth and not others, and they're called dentists, right? So <laughs> they have the relevant knowledge. That's why you go to a mechanic and they're like, "Hey, hey, we got lucky today and fixed three three pairs of brakes." You know, that's not what I want. I want somebody who knows how to do brakes, right? So they've inherited a world that says spiritual and moral knowledge is not possible. And they want to know those, but they're fuzzy, they're confused, they're disoriented around these things. And so all they're left with is preferences, opinions, and just they're like, I wish we could be more confident here, but we don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I think back to kind of a welcome speech by President Levin at Yale University that I came across, you know, the incoming class there several years back. And basically, hey, you're going to explore the big questions of life, and here they are, and these are most important, and they're great. And then I was like, okay, this is going great so far. And then he goes, but your professors are unlikely to give you the answers. Uh, We leave the answers up to you. Now, a couple things that are interesting about that. First, you're at Yale University. You're paying a lot of money. Great to get some answers. That's the first thing. But second, I bet that's not how how the conversation went. We leave the periodic table up to you. We leave what velocity is up to you. Why? Because they assume there's knowledge that can be communicated in the scientific realm, but there is not knowledge in the moral and spiritual realm. 
and therefore we don't teach it as authoritative in the same way we do the hard sciences. And so a generation that's raised with that operating underneath the surface is going to have that hesitancy, and they're not even going to know why. And that's part of why we need to help them understand, no, you can actually know Christianity is real and true. You can actually know this is right and wrong and good and beautiful and all that. So that's yeah. that's an opportunity for us. Do you think that gets back to what Brooke was saying earlier about the differences that they see between facts and truth? Like the like the periodic table would be, hey, that's a fact, or or gravity is a fact, but that's not necessarily truth. Yeah, so I think what they've done is they've adopted a view, and not to get super sophisticated here, it's called scientism which is the idea that all you can know is what the hard sciences tell you. Now, no one ever sets out to, hey, I want to be a, you know, that's, that's my belief. But that's what they've been conditioned with. And so it's very much empirical. Five senses is in front of me. We know from the last 500 years of invest- investigating these questions in philosophy and everything else, that path doesn't end well. Yeah, it doesn't and there's work, far yeah. more things. I mean, science, science is wonderful. Technology is awesome, mm-hmm. but it doesn't answer the biggest questions of life. Right. It doesn't answer what most people think is most important. And that's the tension that they feel. And that's where we need to kind of, in a real sense, blow up scientism, that mm-hmm. over-exalted view, have a healthy view and respect for science, but also, hey, you can actually know things morally. You can know human trafficking is wrong without, without ever having to do a science experiment on that. And you can know it. it, it you have different reasons for knowing it, but that's just as true as the fact that, you know, equals MC square or the law of gravity or velocity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if parents are listening to this right now and they're going, okay, got it. This is helpful. It's helpful for me to think about where my kid is. Um, Jonathan, help us understand what have you seen working day in and day out with Gen Zers? What works? What doesn't work? How do we think about shepherding them, helping them grow, helping them push them into those tension spots where they are going to grow? Yeah. So a couple, couple of things. First is they're far more capable than what we give them credit mm-hmm. for. I mean, as they go through middle school and high school, they're taking AP physics. They're taking all the, I mean, they're taking high level stuff on math and science and history. And yet in many ways, they're still getting coloring book Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, and that's cute for a five-year-old. That's awesome. But when you're 15, when you're 18 in our world, that is not going to cut it. And so we need to give them reasons for faith. I call it the three R's of worldview formation. They need reasons, they need relationships, they need rhythms. And we can; those are the things we can influence as parents around them. Hey, why is this true? Is this true? It's totally okay for you to ask questions. It's totally okay for you to express doubt. Doubt is not sin. Doubt is in between faith and unbelief. Mm-hmm. Faith is active trust and we have good reason to believe it's true. And unbelief is setting yourself against something. Doubt is that I'm not sure. What do I think? And doubt we can use in our conversations around the dinner table or driving around as we're going to the next soccer game (laughs) to talk about what is actually real on the way to a stronger faith. And so putting Christianity back on the table. um, So like one thing I'll say would be a good conversation starter would be this. Hey, do you think Christianity could be false? And then why or why not? Because here's the thing. If Christianity can't be false, then it can't be what? Either true. And if it's neither true nor false, it's not in the realm of reality. But yet the Apostle Paul said, look, if Jesus is not raised in 1 Corinthians 15, then your faith is worthless. So we need to help get the category of Christianity back in the realm of reality as something, knowledge, something they can interact with. They need wise relationships surrounding them that we can influence those things. And then we need to help them practice healthy rhythms that can give them the opportunity to create some space in their life where they're maybe stepped away from their phone for a season or stepped away from technology for a season or the practice of 
reading scripture. Like one of the things that, that I've started doing just as a practical thing as a dad was, you know, I don't read the Bible on my phone pretty much anymore at home, not because version's evil. version's great. Nothing wrong with version. <laughs> I'm just saying my, my kids don't know if I'm reading version or checking ESPN or social mm-hmm. media. So I've got just my good old regular Bible out there reading that and encouraging them to do the same because the great thing about the physical Bible is you can't double click and get distracted and everything else. So just those kinds of things. But the big picture idea is that Christianity is actually true and Christianity is not true just because you believe it. And it's not true just because you were raised in a Christian home or go to church or youth group, but it's either true or false. And you can investigate that question. So what do you think, you know, 12 year old, 15 year old, 18 year old and getting that on the, on the table and out of the kind of realm where they've just been kind of conditioned, they've learned the Christian language that they've grown mm-hmm. up with, they've learned the right answers to say, but the inside, they don't know why they believe, and they maybe don't even believe at all. They just have learned how to speak. The critical point there is not just that we need to be doing this with our kids, but a lot of parents have probably not been equipped to talk to their kids about this. I mean, uh, probably a lot of parents are sitting there going, uh, wait a second, did you just say that? I should ask my kid if Christianity could be false, you know, like, because I think, because I think a lot of parents are like, I don't know what to do with that. And so what have you seen as far as like equipping parents in that regard? If we're, if our audience is sitting here going, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. I'm with you. I just don't know where to start. What are you telling them? Well, a couple things just from, from my perspective on this is at Impact 360, we've created what's called our Explore series. And these are just uh, explore truth, explore worldview, explore the resurrection, which kind of I teach where we just kind of walk through. How do you understand what is what is truth? How do you talk about it? If you didn't couldn't say the Bible says so, how do you know that Jesus was raised from the dead? Or how do worldview shape us? So that might be a place they can go. That's at impact360.org. Um, I've written a book called Welcome to College, which is here, a spoiler alert, not just for college students. Um, <laughs> you know, most most parents could read that and see a, get a glimpse into the world of their student, but also be equipped in these categories. And that's something that's helpful. Which, by the way, to plug that, um, I gave that book to a buddy of mine whose kid just started college. And uh, they went through it in the spring and summer of this year and uh, spoke really highly of it. It creates a lot of these conversations that you probably don't know how to start or are uncomfortable introducing these things. And it just, uh, if you're a parent going through this with your child, it it's a great tool and resource to just help you, help guide you through those conversations. Well, thanks. I appreciate yeah. that. And there's, that's what I've heard from other parents and there's questions in the back. So again, I can get into more specifics, but here's what I'd encourage as parents, because as parents, we feel overwhelmed <laughs> by the schedule and time and demands of work and trying to get everything done. And But you don't have to have a PhD to give your kid a lasting faith. That's not what is required, but it will take some intentionality around some, some thinking about some of these things and helping them walk through them. So you can totally do this. So if you're walking around you know, on the treadmill right now or on a commute or something like this, like you can totally do this. And we want to be an ally for you here at Impact 360 and other things like that to, to come alongside what you're doing. Obviously, Watermark is fabulous. I mean, there's tons of people, Nathan, everybody else doing great work. So go find people that can help you get some understanding about these to have better conversations when they come up. Mm, that's good. Well, Brooke, what have you seen in your research about just the, the effective ways that this generation is reached? So you you do these focus groups and you see 
the deer in the headlights and I don't know. And you know, the, the top selected deal is, you know, I I'm confused or I don't know the answer to this question. What have been some effective methodologies in coming alongside to, to meet those kids where they are? Yeah, well, we're, we're, st- we're still seeing that because, um, again, they're in this really critical transition period in their life, but a hugely effective way of growing them is mentorship. And that's something that's become more and more common in a lot of church communities, um, especially with young adults. They're still perhaps just needing that spiritual parent <laughs> and someone to guide them and make, make good decisions, um, even more so with Gen Z. Um, the idea that they can be really known deeply and loved deeply, that only helps them wrestle through these logical questions that they need to, but also just gives them context, like the experience of having a loving father, right? And so that that's one of the beautiful things about mentorship is it's a it's an opportunity to connect and try to wrestle with what they're wrestling with, but also it just models what it means to have um, a, a genuine love for someone and so that they know what that looks like, feels like. And that seems to be those those sorts of ministries that, that operate in those ways seem to have some of the deepest impact on teens and, and young adults that we've seen in, in terms of those we've assessed and, and evaluated. Yeah, I think I think we have a really unique opportunity for a generation of people that tends toward asking the core questions of life. Who am I? How do I define who I am? Is the thing that I'm attempting to define my identity by, is that solid? And there's going to be a lot of disillusionment that happens. And I think in those tension points, it creates an opportunity for us as parents and for us as youth leaders and mentors, like Brooke said, to come alongside of these students and engage them with the gospel, to to step into that space that is uh, really shaky for them, creates a lot of anxiety, pushes people into depression, and actually have a substantive relational connection with them to help them know you're loved by God, you're loved by me, and that your identity ultimately is in Christ. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Jonathan Morrow and Brooke Hempel. If you like what you heard, subscribe, tell your friends. And you can always email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Karen will get back to you. He's a liar. (laughs) Nah, one of us will. Anyway, (laughs) join us next week for part three with Jonathan and Brooke. Bye. Peace.